How many of you love Christmas music? Yeah, me too. Is my daughter in here? Yeah, she is. Did you raise your hand? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Just seeing if you're staying honest, honey. <laughs> oh, Dad, not Christmas music again. I love Christmas music. I love it. So, because it exalts our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Listen, this morning, if you're new with us, we'd like you to fill this connection card out also and take it to the back table, and we have a gift for you. Please don't leave without getting the gift. If you don't want to fill out the card, that's fine too. Just make sure you go to the back table and get the gift. And as Terry was saying, if you've been with us before, fill out the card and just at least put your name on here and how can we pray for you, maybe a praise report, anything. It's just our way of communicating one with another and making sure that we haven't missed you. So this morning, by the way, thank you, Jordan. Thank you. That was beautiful. Great song. In light of Christmas being only six days away and following, I don't know if you were here last week. How many of you were here last week? So you got to hear Pastor David's message. Were you blessed? Were you blessed? Amen. Good. Well, I was thinking in light of that, that particular message from last week, which he entitled The Main Thing, where he taught, if you don't remember, from Luke chapter 10 about Martha and Mary. About Martha and Mary. And unlike her sister Mary, that is Martha, who was distracted with many good things, I'm just reminding you of the sermon from last week, but did not focus on the main thing or even the best thing. Even the best thing. Quoting David, Martha wished to honor the Lord with an elaborate meal, but she allowed that good and noble desire to become burdensome and interfere with the main thing, which was to listen to Him. She should have been content to serve a simpler meal and keep the main thing the main thing. But Martha's behavior, beloved, before we critique her so so quickly, should cause us to reflect on our own attitude and actions. For it is just as easy for us to lose sight of the main thing, especially, especially during this time of year. I am certain that many in our culture have no idea what this holiday is really all about. Or, as Christians, to some degree, they have lost touch with the, quote, real reason for the season. Right? Isn't that what we always say? Remember the reason for the season? It comes off of our lips so easy, but it's so hard for us to do sometimes. It's much bigger than this baby Jesus in the manger scene. It is even much bigger than a miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, which we read about this morning. Listen, what happens is, is we as believers or people in general become overwhelmed by all the Christmas activities added to our very busy, hectic lives. This can and is typically a very stressful time of year. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with that? Yes. You can talk back to me. It's okay. The decoration or the redesign of the house inside and out. I was watching a show. Some people start three months early. October. 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 So that means even before Halloween is finished, they're starting to put up Christmas lights. Have you seen some of these shows? I mean, these are elaborate decorations, 150,000 lights or so to decorate the outside of their house. How about finding the perfect tree? Or one you can afford, either way. I remember I used to run. This would be a tradition. We have a tradition in our home. The day after Thanksgiving, we go out and find our tree. And for many years, this I enjoyed it, but I dreaded it. Because we would drive from lot to lot to lot. And I would try to barter them down and down and down. And now we just go to Home Depot. We pick the first tree we find. Boom, done. $35, we're gone. How about hanging lights, right? Some of the things we do this time of year. Hanging lights and then spending hours trying to figure out why they don't work. Have you done that? Searching and searching for the perfect gift if there is such a thing. Or trying to make our dollar go farther by hunting and hunting for the best deal because times are tight. Fighting your way through crowds and encountering people who are not so jolly. Meeting with extended family and all the issues that are related with that. Good and bad. Listen, we can become so 
occupied with the many tasks that Christmas adds to our to-do list, that it begins to become a burden. Christmas becomes a burden. And the joy that we begin with turns into a, I can't wait until this thing is over. What is also sad to me about this time of year is for some, the festivities are a facade. A facade. You know what I'm talking about? A facade. It's that if you go to Universal Studios and you walk down one of their city blocks and it looks like it's a city, but it's really just plywood. It has pictures painted on the front of buildings and offices, but behind there's nothing there. That's a facade. There's nothing there. They decorate their houses. We decorate our houses with bright, joyful lights. We sing cheerful Christmas songs. We, quote, happily give and receive gifts. But inside, inside we are sad and discouraged, depressed, filled with fear and anxiety. The marriage is a mess. People can't sleep at night because they're worrying about their disobedient children. They stress over how they're going to pay the unnecessary debt they just racked up hoping to make everyone happy this jolly Christmas season. The gifts they receive bring temporary pleasure, but before long, that passes. And when the lights come down and the Christmas music stops playing, Alyssa, and the stuff isn't exciting anymore, they are often left feeling empty and discouraged as another Christmas has come and gone. I am convinced, beloved, that if we could, if we would truly grab a hold of the main thing about Christmas this morning, it will bring us the joy and the peace that we desperately need and that our soul longs for. So this morning, we will be studying. You can look at your notes to follow along inside of the bulletin. We will be studying a saying from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. You can turn your Bibles there if you're using one of our church Bibles. Page 991 will bring you to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to be looking at this saying, and I'm hoping that it will help clarify Christmas for us, so that we might sincerely, honestly, truthfully, fully celebrate the season as we were meant to. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here's how I'm going to do it this morning. I'm just going to read a section at a time. You can read ahead if you'd like, but I'm just going to read a section at a time and kind of build up to the main point. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy. Stop right there. The saying is trustworthy. This is our first point we're going to look at. The saying that we're going to look at in a moment, that's in 1 Timothy 1, 15, Paul, the writer of 1 Timothy, he says it is trustworthy. So my first point, it is wholly reliable. Wholly reliable. Paul refers to the sayings that are trustworthy two more times in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 9, and also again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, and then one more time in Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying, this idea, implies this statement was something that was recognized and repeated in the churches and among God's people. Now, we have different sayings in our culture, right? Such as, starve a cold, feed a fever. That's a saying. That's something that we're all familiar with, that we communicate one to another. Or how about this one? What goes around, comes around. Or you could probably finish these sayings for me. Or how about this one? Insanity is hereditary. You get it from your kids. How about that one? Familiar with that one? <laughs> I am. <laughs> However, the sayings here, 
four times that Paul refers to him, and specifically in 1 Timothy 1.15, they're all familiar summary statements about key truths of the Christian faith. All of them. If you looked at all the references I just gave you, these sayings that Paul refers to are all key summary statements about, or key truths, summary statements of the Christian faith. Either what to believe or what to practice. Paul went on to identify this saying as trustworthy, as trustworthy. There are many things in our culture that we say and we pass around and we accept as true that are not, that are not. For instance, we say if it is too good to be true, it probably is, or we just say it is, which means that if it's too good to be true, don't buy it. Now, generally, that's probably good advice, but that is not wholly true. Because if we take that and apply it to grace or the message of salvation, it is certainly a message that is too good to be true, but beloved, it is absolutely and entirely true. How about this one? All good things must come to an an end. I think the minister says that right after he announces them husband and wife. Or maybe they thought he said that because we have a 50% divorce rate or more in our country. That statement is generally true, but it is not entirely or wholly true, right? Because if that was the case, that would mean that salvation itself must come to an end. So all good things do not necessarily come to an end. Paul here is reassuring his readers by adding the word trustworthy, That this saying is something that they can wholly, that is, completely and entirely rely on. Wholly, that is, completely and entirely rely on. It is worthy of their trust and continued repeating because it is 100% true all the time. 100% true all the time, not just some of the time. And this saying does not summarize the corrupted and incomplete wisdom of men, like those other sayings I just referenced, but reflects the pure and perfect knowledge of God and His unfailing Word. We live in a world, beloved, filled with liars and lies. And it's easy to become cynical and skeptical about truth claims. Everyone claims that they have the truth. The Word of God here is declaring this is something you must not doubt or question. That's what Paul is saying. You must not doubt or question this. The saying is accurate and flawless. It is wholly reliable. In other words, you could bet your life on it. That's what Paul is saying. The saying is trustworthy. And because this saying is trustworthy, it is the second point, wholly receivable. Wholly receivable. First Timothy, looking back at the text again. Wholly reliable, wholly receivable. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Deserving of full acceptance. That's that phrase we want to look at now. Deserving of full acceptance. The word acceptance there in the text is used as a verb in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. And there it's translated welcomed. Listen, just listen to the text. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him. Same word for acceptance. For they were all waiting for Him. It's used again in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, and there it's translated received. So the same word acceptance is translated welcomed and received. Listen to the text. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. From these two examples, we get the idea that this word communicates gladness, and willingness. Gladness and willingness. So when Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, he is saying 
It is to gladly receive something or someone. Acceptance. To gladly receive, take in, something or someone. This holy, reliable saying, by its nature, the fact that it is a 100% true all the time, deserves to be accepted without reservation. Without reservation. It is holy receivable. It is suitable or worthy to be accepted or received. That's the idea. There is nothing about it that allows someone, you or I, to hesitate or to resist gladly opening their minds and their hearts to take it in, to receive it. Gladly. Gladly, with joy, is the idea. The idea is one should personally, gladly, and fully embrace this saying by believing and trusting in all the truth that this summary statement represents. That's what Paul is saying. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What saying? What saying? Well, let's read it. It's there in the text. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, we're going to examine that statement closer in a moment, but let me say this right now. He was born, beloved, born into the world for a specific purpose. And separating the two from one another is not full acceptance. I'm going to say it again. Separating the two from one another is not full acceptance. That is his birth and the reason for his birth. You cannot comply with what Paul is saying by accepting that Christ was born without also fully receiving, gladly receiving, fully trusting in the purpose, which according to Paul was to save sinners, you have to receive and accept both. Otherwise, you are not taking this at full acceptance. You are dividing it up. See, we don't get to redefine Jesus the way we want to or to determine on our own why He came. Why He came, which is what some people do. Some people are very, very comfortable with the image of a fragile, small, unconfrontational, dependent baby lying quietly in a manger. And as one brother said to me last week, one that says nothing. One that says nothing. He's not, sme- he's not speaking. He's a child. They're comfortable with that vision of Jesus. They're comfortable with the fact that He came into the world, period. Period. But Jesus was not just another cute baby, was He? No. He was God in the flesh and He grew up as a man to die a cruel and ugly substitutionary death on a cross to rescue sinners like you and I from the wrath of God. And oh, by the way, on the way to the cross, He did not remain quiet. He talked a lot. He continually warned and urged people to put their confidence and their trust in Him. He said things like this, John chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. This little baby grew up into a man on his way to the cross and said things like this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Glory to God. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Beloved, those are that baby, those are his words. That one in a manger, the cute little innocent baby. How about this? 
John 12, verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. People practice partial acceptance. Accept him as a baby in a manger, yes. None of the other stuff. It's those very words, though, that Jesus spoke that will stand in judgment over you in the last day, Jesus says. How about one more passage that gets everyone riled up in this multi-religious world we live in? John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one. Listen, guys, there's no other way to interpret this. This is not my interpretation. Read it for yourself. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is what He said. This is what Jesus said. Are there multiple hundreds and even thousands of other religions out there? Yes. Take it up with Jesus. That's what He said. See, you can't accept Him as child, baby in a manger, and then at the same time say, but I think there are many ways to get to heaven. Well, then you do not fully accept this one because this is what He said. This is what He said. People are very comfortable, I notice, talking about God generically, even using Father, talking about the Father. But the second you bring Jesus into the conversation, everything changes. You ever notice that? It changes. All of a sudden, it becomes odd and strange and sometimes hostile, uncomfortable, even heated. Why? Because Jesus used strong words. And Jesus confronts people, not only in His words, but in His very life and certainly in His death. In his death. You know, I always thought, in fact, I, this is not my idea. Someone, I heard someone suggest this. What if they put, you know, those word balloons and comic strips? You know, you're reading a comic strip and broop, there's this little balloon up here and it has, has what the person is thinking or saying. What if God supernaturally suspended these word balloons above all the baby Jesuses? in people's homes and out on their lawns. And what was suggested was is that if that was a reality, that there would certainly be less nativity scene figures purchased or displayed. Right? He's okay. He can't say anything as he lies as a baby in the manger. People are more willing to accept a little helpless, wordless, living baby because Jesus pictured only as a child, beloved, can hide the reality of why He was born in the first place and does not immediately or necessarily force us to deal with the idea that we are sinners. We are sinners worthy of God's wrath and our only hope, our only Hope to be rescued from what is coming is Jesus' death in our place. It's our only hope. Paul cannot and will not separate the two. His birth, His coming, and the purpose for His coming. They are tied together in His mind forever. And they should be in our minds too. He was born as a baby to die as a man for sinners. The cross, beloved, should be hanging in the background of every nativity scene. Or at least in your mind. So the saying is wholly reliable and wholly receivable and third, it shows us the who and the why of baby Jesus. That brings us to the third point. Look at your 
outline. His unmistakable individuality. Individuality. You know what that is? That's what sets us apart from everyone else. See, Jesus was not just another man. He was not just another man. Look back at the text. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 15. Thus saying, it is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It is wholly reliable. It is wholly receivable. And here is that saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world. Stop right there. Jesus is not one more human being in the long line of impressive human beings who have lived on this earth. Right? Oh boy. Let's try that again. Jesus is not one more human being in a long line of impressive human beings that have lived on this earth. Right? Ooh, good, good. He is not just a good teacher or a simple model for humanity to follow. That is not His limitations. He did not just have some positive things to say about how to get along better with others. You talk to some people. Beloved, maybe you're here today. You talk to some people. The, why did Jesus come to earth? He taught us the golden rule. To treat others as you want to be treated. Well, He did teach that. He did talk about that actually. But I wouldn't say that was the purpose of His coming to earth. But that's all they know. They think Jesus was just another guy trying to help us along in this thing we call life. Paul identified him here first as the Christ. You see, we always say Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ. You notice that it's reversed here? He wants you first to know his title. His title, because it's significant. He is Christ Jesus, because Christ, as we've said before, is not His last name. It is His title. And the meaning includes all that is written in the Old Testament about the promised and long-awaited Messiah. Messiah. Christ, in the New Testament, is the equivalent of Messiah in the Old Testament. It is simply the Greek word, and in the Old Testament, they use the word Messiah the Hebrew or the English translation of the Hebrew, Mashiach. Hashua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah in the Hebrew. He is the one that the devout, the devout and the wise were anticipating and longing for. Do you remember? Maybe you have that picture in your home. You know you have the nativity scene. And then there's three strange looking dudes standing around holding stuff. Those are the wise men, or the magi, they're referred to. How do you think they knew to come looking for Jesus? How do you think they knew? You think just they got a telegram, email blast, or Facebook, Jesus has arrived, you know, they're checking. Good, excellent. We'll go check that out. I don't have anything really to do today. No, they were anticipating they were looking for because they were very familiar with the Old Testament prophecies found in the Hebrew Scriptures that we call the Old Testament. That's how they knew. And they knew exactly where to look. Not because they Googled it, but because they were very familiar with the Old Testament promises that prophesied thousands of years prior that this one would come. That's how they knew. That God would send forth, here was the promise, the anointed, eternal, sovereign king who would be the supreme ruler of Israel and the nations, having unmatched power and authority according to Isaiah chapter 9. That's in the Old Testament. And at his second coming, he would rule and reign forever as king on earth. And he would be a selfless servant who would suffer die and rise again at His first coming, proving His identity as Lord of all and the Savior of sinners. Isaiah 52-53. through 53. Check it out. It's right there. That's where they got it. There are many, many, many more Old Testament prophecies and promises, including the very birthplace 
of this one. That's how they knew where to look. Shortly before Jesus was born, an angel had told Joseph, we read it this morning, that it's, it's okay, Joseph, you can take your pregnant virgin wife <laughs> or betrothed, which would be very odd, to be your wife. She has not committed adultery. That was the issue. He was concerned that she had messed around. How else do you get pregnant? So the angel had to come and calm Joseph down. The child, according to Matthew, that she is going to carry will be the fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah foretold. This is what he says. Listen, just listen. Matthew chapter 1, in verse 21 through 23. Here's what the angel tells Joseph. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right out of the gate! This is why He's coming. His very name means God is salvation. Jesus, God is salvation. And then He says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What took place? This virgin birth. All this will take place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's telling, the angel is telling Joseph, this one being born is the one that was prophesied by Isaiah. How do you know? He will be born, unlike you and I, like you and I in one way, but not in another way, because he was conceived not by a man, but by God in Mary's womb. In Mary's womb, beloved, was the prophesied Messiah, the Christ child, the only hope for sinners, the Savior of the world. That is who Paul is referencing in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ, unmistakable individuality is also seen in the words that this Christ, this Messiah, this promised one, Jesus, came into the world. That's interesting. Came into the world. That phrase, beloved, implies His preexistence. His preexistence. He, he was somewhere else and He came into the world. He was not created like you and I through the normal process of conception, but He came into the world and He took on an additional nature that is a human nature like yours and mine, but sinless, through a supernatural conception within Mary's womb. As we said earlier, Mary was a virgin. In other words, Jesus has no beginning and no end like you and I. Not like you and I. He has no beginning and no end. He has always existed because He is God, and now He will forever be the God-man having two natures, divine and human, in the one person, Jesus the Christ. Here's a big, big word for you. This is referred to in theological circles as the hypostatic union. It's the hypostatic union. There are these two natures, divine and human, in the one person, Jesus Christ. He is truly God and truly man. He is unique. He is unique. He has unmistakable individuality. He came in the world, clothed Himself in human flesh to live as a man so He could die for mankind. Here's a couple of passages. You can write them down or you can look at them. Possibly on the screen we'll see. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Maybe you're very familiar with it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Well, who is that Word? Who is this Word that was in the beginning with God? He was always there. There was no beginning with Him. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Jesus is the Word, the one that was in the beginning with God, was always there. He pre-existed. That's why Paul says he came into the world. Not like you and I. Not like you and I. We were created. Our beginning started as we were conceived in our mother's womb. I would imagine that somewhere down the road I won't be able to make that statement. I'll have to add, or in a laboratory somewhere or something like that, probably in the future, do you think? Conceived in his mother's... We are conceived in our mother's wombs. Our beginning is there. Jesus' beginning was before there. He came into the world and came into Mary's womb. He has always existed. And toward the end of his earthly ministry, knowing his death and resurrection would soon be a reality, here's what he told his disciples. Here's more of Jesus' words. Just listen. John chapter 16, verse 28, in case you write it down. I came from the Father... I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Pre-existed one. The Christ, the Messiah, King of Kings. So here's the question. Why would the King of Kings, the Eternal One, the Supreme, Powerful Being, when I say that I can't even give it, I can't even use enough words. The Supreme well, you know, we just, eh, supreme. So all-powerful. Like the cartoons I used to watch, you know? Captain Grayskull, and he was all-powerful. This is truly the Almighty One, the Son of God. Why would He leave the glories and the privileges and riches of heaven to come to earth? <laughs> I heard a sigh over there. To come to earth and take on a human nature? Just in case you were wondering, that's an inferior nature compared to the divine one. I know we think we're all that, but not really. Not really. And then be born as a vulnerable, weak, dependent baby into a poor and modest family. The king! Why would he? Why would he do that, beloved? Oh, I know. So that we would have a good reason to give and receive numerous gifts once a year. So retail stores could finally make a profit. No? Okay, how about this? So we could have peace on earth. And before you answer that, write this down. Matthew 10, verse 34 through 39. I'm not going to read it. Just write it down, Matthew 10, 34-39. Many believe that Jesus came the first time to bring peace on earth, and he actually says, no, I did not. The reality is, is that his presence brought conflict. Where was the peace in killing him? Because Jesus says that when light comes into the world, that darkness hates the light. There's a collision course. And all of you, maybe not all of you, but some of you are very familiar with the reality that when you take Jesus as Lord, it doesn't bring peace on earth. It doesn't even bring peace in your family. In fact, it creates chaos. Peace is coming, beloved. Peace is coming at His second coming. It's coming. And we can have peace with God But Jesus did not come so that all of our relationships would be all happy and dandy. In fact, the opposite is true, sadly. Because darkness hates the light. And that brings me to the final point. Jesus' unmistakable intentionality. His unmistakable intentionality. Paul says that this saying is wholly reliable, it is wholly receivable, And then he identifies Jesus Christ by showing us his unmistakable individuality. He is the Christ. He is the pre-existent one. He came into the world. And so you don't miss it. He concludes with his unmistakable intentionality. Why did he come into the world? To save sinners. That's why. Paul goes on to say, we won't 
address it much, of whom I am the foremost. That's interesting, Paul. Of who I rate the highest, Paul. The great Apostle Paul. Before he became the great Apostle Paul, he was also the one who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. The one who oversaw their imprisonment and sometimes death of those who named Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Paul is saying, listen, if he can save a sinner like me, he can save a sinner like you. No one is beyond his ability to save. And Paul is also stating there, he is my Savior. He's not just a Savior out there of sinners, but of whom I am the foremost, recognizing personally Jesus is my Savior, my personal Savior, not just a Savior. Or as it's stated in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The theme is repeated over and over and over again. Why did Jesus come? Why was He born? And I, I said that this was unmistakable. But I think it's unmistakable. I think the Scripture makes it clear that it is unmistakable. And yet, people regularly are confused. He is not Santa Claus. Jesus is not Santa Claus. And you're probably looking at me like, okay, yeah, Pastor, uh, we know that. Yeah, okay. Here's a song. I, when I was a young child, I, I really liked the song. I don't like it so much now. And I'm not bah humbug. I do all the Christmas stuff. But here's a song about Santa Claus. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Jordan, I need you to do some backup up here. Singing's not my forte. Santa Claus is coming to town. Fine, that's great. Now, what's the rest say? He's making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Yeah, you know it. Santa Claus is coming to town. Guess what? He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. That's interesting. He knows if you've been so be for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. So here's what we do. We tell our kids. (laughs) You know, Santa Claus is coming to town. We, sometimes we tell him three months early. And do you know what happens if you're not good? In my day, it used to be that if, I don't know, do you guys know this, that you would get coal in your stocking. I don't know if they say that anymore, but coal, some stuff you really don't want, um, unless you can pressurize it or something maybe, I don't know. But coal in your stocking is what the bad boys and girls get, right? But if you're a good Boy or girl, if you don't pout, if you don't have tantrums, if you obey mommy and daddy, Santa's going to load you up. He's going to make you a happy boy and girl, right? Unfortunately, beloved, Santa, Jesus, I think we get them a little confused this time of year. And we start to think that Jesus came for what? For good people? For good little boys and girls? To load them up? To give them all the desires of their heart? No. Jesus came for rotten, bad, misbehaving, tantrum-throwing, In a while, I can't think of any other words. Rebellious. <laughs> Thanks, babe. Uh, 
sinners. He came to save sinners. He came to give people what they don't deserve. We get confused. We think Jesus is Santa Claus. He's not Santa Claus. Oh, He sees you when you're sleeping and He knows when you're awake, but all He sees is sinners. You can't do enough to get right with Him. That's why He he came to save you. He came to save you. He was born for one unmistakable purpose, to rescue sinners from the coming judgment by giving His life in exchange for theirs. You understand? I don't see Santa doing that. Let me think about it. Nah, it's alright. Santa, he's cool and all, but he's not giving his life for me. Eating 11 months out of the year, sitting in his recliner, working one night a month out of the year. He died in our place, beloved. He took the Father's wrath that sinners deserved so that when they would submit and obey His Word by calling Him Lord and trusting in Him entirely for their salvation, they would receive forgiveness of all their sins, past, present, and future, be reconciled to God and be granted eternal life. That's real peace and joy. Many, beloved, will open presents in a few days. And they will not think twice about the real meaning of this holiday. Yeah. I trust that will not be true for you. I I trust, I hope, I pray that it will not be true to you. This Christmas, don't miss the real celebration that this day should represent. That it should represent. Here's what I'm thinking. I have been forgiven. My debt has been wiped clean. You know what I'm saying, Senior? My debt has been wiped clean. I have no debt before God anymore. And even if I sin tomorrow, and I certainly will, I don't even have to wait till tomorrow. Jesus paid it all. His blood, His death, cleanses me before God so that I might receive and be thankful for His forgiveness. I have been made right with God because of Jesus' righteousness. I am not a good little boy waiting to get gifts from Jesus. I'm a bad little boy. I grew up. I'm a bad man. I'm a bad man rescued by Jesus and made righteous in my Holy Father's sight by the righteousness of my Savior Jesus Christ. Clothed in His righteousness. Born to save me, a sinner. A sinner that is being transformed, that is being changed day to day by His grace so that I no longer have to continue to walk in the ugliness of sin, the vileness of sin, the wickedness of sin, the sin that drove my Savior to the cross. Mm. So, there are some of you, I am certain, that do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. You know Him as a little baby in a manger. You know He has something to do with the gifts, maybe, that you'll open this Christmas. Somehow He's connected with Santa. You're really not sure. Maybe you you figured all that out now you've grown up. But to you, He's just still a baby in a manger. Soft, sweet, silent, speechless, alive baby. 
And you do not or have not fully accepted what Paul says here, that this one born who came into the world, this Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Supreme One, through the incarnation, immaculate conception, born into the world for one reason, one, one, to save you from the wrath of God to come. You haven't, you haven't received that. So here's what I say to you, beloved. I say to you that after the service, if that is you and the Lord has been speaking to you and you feel convicted and you want this year to be the year, the greatest year, the greatest Christmas that you will, I promise, ever have or experience, I would invite you after the service, I'll have a couple people standing over here. Would you come talk to them? Would you come talk to them and not leave again? Would you come find out what it means to receive Christ Jesus as your personal Savior? Would you do that? I can't make you. If I could, I would, but I can't. But God can. So I'm trusting that He'll do just that. That He'll bring your sorry state up here and you'll walk out of here with more joy and more peace than you've ever known in your entire life. That you too, this Christmas, can celebrate with me and many others the real reason. Free, beloved. Free. Burdenless. My sin paid for and gone. And I have one more word to you. That know this Jesus this Christ as Savior. Try to remember. (laughs) Is it Saturday? (laughs) Take some time. Take some time this Saturday. Start a tradition with your family. Something. Because we lose sight of this. We lose sight. The two are connected. Paul would not let us break them apart. Yes, he came. Yes, He was born, but always with the cross in mind. He came to save sinners. And beloved, if the tree was gone and the lights were broken and someone came in and stole all your presents and there was no good Christmas music playing in the background, (laughs) would your Christmas be over? Ah, see, it doesn't have to be. That's what you've got to ask yourself. What am I doing here? I love all those things. I love them. Do them and more. But what really brings me joy, the reason I can really celebrate, is because of that right there. 